teachers. Miss Marigold Miss Marigold was young and bubbly with wild brown hair and happy twinkly eyes. She was as bright as her name. She was our third form teacher, so we were about 12 or 13 years old. A very impressionable age. Miss Marigold was a perfect mentor for this time in our lives. She wore unusual hippie-ish clothes in earthy colours. Her hair looked like it had been scribbled around her button face. She was not very tall and she was stocky but not at all fat. She was like a doll. She decorated our entire classroom, but not in her woolly, earthy dress style, more like a trendy 60s home. She painted the notice boards purple and stuck Mary Quant-type flowers in orange and yellow all around them. She draped curtains at the windows, placed Athena posters on the walls of famous pieces of art and placed magazines on the shelves. She encouraged us to bring cups of coffee that we had made from the geezer in the dorm next door, which was called Ballyhoo, and she introduced us to brown bread and honey, a delight I had never tasted before. We loved this classroom and hung out there whenever we could, as it satisfied our desire for all things homey. In this classroom, we discovered that there were actually other things in the world as interesting as ballet. She admired us, her young charges, for our grit and determination, dance-wise, but she also showed us the joy of simply living and the excitement of new fashion and design. This was the period at the school when my friends and I started to really grow up and get excited about our futures, whatever they were going to be. After all the strictness of the previous years, we were gradually being let off the leash and encouraged to express ourselves academically, vocationally and personally. Looking back, I can see how we were moulded and equipped with all the skills and imaginations we would need to become dancers by our wonderful teachers. Of course, some were better than others, but they were all special in their own way. Another teacher was Mademoiselle Gillet. She was our French teacher and she was beautiful. She was tall and willowy with wispy blonde hair that she wore in the most precarious French pleat. She had the kind of long, long legs that wrapped around each other when she crossed them. She told us that we should always sit with our legs crossed and not with our knees apart as we did before she taught us otherwise. She also taught us that all accents were attractive apart from an English person speaking French, which she thought sounded like boiled eggs in the mouth. Therefore, she told us we had to adopt perfect French pronunciation or not bother with French at all. We loved French classes with Mademoiselle Gillet. She would make imaginary dinner parties which we conducted in French with perfect French accents of course. The fact that all ballet terms are in French helped us hugely. Mr Judd. From number nine my little group of friends and I went up into number four. There were only six of us in this dorm, which gave us a fantastic feeling of pride to be in such a lovely space. We couldn't wait to get back to our dorm during any free periods. It was during our stay in this dorm that we had Mr Judd as our form teacher. Mr Judd was tall and slim with a long, long nose. He was the first straight male teacher we had ever had. 
He was sporty and loved tennis. He couldn't believe that we never did any sports at the school. Nowadays, dance might be considered a sport, but in Mr Judd's book, sport was a sport and dance wasn't. He set about trying to teach us to play tennis. We had a tennis court at the school, but it was in a pretty bad state. We liked to bat a few tennis balls around, and my great friend Cassie had played a lot at home, so I used to play with her a bit, but Mr Judd wanted to teach us properly. We started off in the wrongly named small studio, as it was actually huge. About four of us, keen on anything girls, attended. OK, let's start with backhand. Mr Judd started hurling balls at us, and all of us, except for Cassie, who knew how to play, felt the need to extend our arms beautifully and arrange our heads in a balletic pose, whilst the balls simply went straight past us. Keep your eyes on the ball! yelled Mr Rudd. And we did watch the balls, but in the mirror, because that's how we learned things in ballet classes, so they continued to swish past us. The harder we tried, the worse we got. We seemed incapable of seeing the tennis ball anywhere but in the mirror, and Mr Judd just got crosser and crosser, so we abandoned the tennis idea. Cassandra Reed a stunning little blonde girl who wore her skirts rolled over at the waist to make it knicker-skimmingly short and had naughty written all over her, noted the fact that Mr Judd had a bit of a temper and decided to use it against him. Not because she didn't like him. We all quite liked him. No, she was just mischievous and this was not good news for Mr Judd. In the next class Mr Judd had us for, which was maths, Cassandra started to answer him back every time he asked her to be quiet. She kept responding with, Why should I? She kept it up until Mr Judd threatened to hit her, to which she said, Go on then, hit me, hit me, hit me, hit me, hit me, in a sing-song couldn't care a less way. And he did! To the hushed gasps of the whole third-form class. After what seemed like an age where everybody held their breath, the silence was broken by wooden chair legs scraping the floor as they were simultaneously pushed back. We all jumped up and ran out of the classroom. We locked ourselves in the stationery cupboard, the entire class like sardines, and threw the keys out of the tiny airbrick of a window. When Mrs Jones, our history teacher, finally found us, Cassandra said that Mr Judd had locked us in there after he had hit her. None of us disagreed with her, as our loyalties lay with each other, not with Mr Judd. But I have to say that we all felt really guilty for many years after, as we never saw Mr Judd again after that day. Mr Simpson Mr Judd was replaced by another man, Mr Simpson. He was an older, cuddly-looking man that wore tweed jackets with leather elbow patches and baggy cord trousers that looked like they were threatening to fall down all the time. Messy in a clever sort of way. There was something about the school, and our set in particular, that made many of the teachers confide in us. It was as if we were in a bubble, a kind of confession box, and visiting or working adults felt they could get things off their chest with us. Mr Simpson confided in us that his beautiful young wife had left him and that he was missing his two-year-old daughter Leilani terribly. He told us that Leilani meant flower of heaven 
in Hawaiian. Our hearts went out to him and we asked him to bring his little daughter to see us next time he had some time with her. He did and Leilani was so pretty and dainty. She said nothing and we all cooed over her and gave her some of our precious sweets from our tuck boxes. When Mr Simpson left that weekend with Leilani in the back of the car looking out of the back window, we all ran after the car skipping and dancing and waving goodbye to the little girl who was perfectly straight-faced and flicked us all a V with her two fingers which stopped us all in our tracks. We were educated in such a cloistered way that most of us didn't even really understand what her gesture meant, but we could all tell by her wicked expression that it was something bad and that the little flower of heaven was in fact a little devil in disguise. We had some wonderful teachers at the school that made me fall in love with literature and art and learning in general. Those academic teachers had the wind in their faces as it was not unusual for any one of us to be yanked out of class for some rehearsal or extra ballet class. But they shared our love of dance and never complained and some of us, miraculously, did very well when we came to exams. Miss Law and Miss Lister Miss Law and Miss Lister were a lovely pair of old lesbians. Miss Law and Miss Lister taught us drama, elocution and stage makeup. They both seemed larger than life, with Miss Law, who was as tall as Miss Lister, was wide. Both smoked skinny cigarillos that were on their persons at all times like an extra body part that enabled us to literally smell them coming. They wore matching drama teacher type clothes, long flowing skirts, Isadora Duncan scarves, chiffon blouses to cover their massive chests and bobbed hairstyles straight from the 1920s. They also both had unusually deep voices which we found fascinating. All the regular elocution exercises like touching your noses with your tongues and opening our mouths as wide as we could as well as learning endless ditties and tongue twisters were covered. My elocution progress was hampered slightly by a brace that the school organised for me. I had inherited my dad's Dracula high teeth and they didn't fit with the required ballet image. Mum by this time was no longer surprised by the constant changes in her little girl each time I went home. The appearance of a mouth full of metal, however, was going to take some explaining on our next visit to our family in Italy, where children with braces were not yet the norm. Miss Law and Miss Lister also taught us how to do stage makeup. Miss Curran, my original ballet teacher, had already bought me my blue metal makeup box, which went with me from theatre to theatre throughout my professional working life. She filled it with the required Leishner makeup sticks pancake, crimson number nine, lake number 22, black number 12, white number 20, false eyelashes, loose powder, brushes, a bar of white soap, sponges powder puff and a huge tub of something that looked like axle grease. How sweet of her to do this for me. I couldn't wait to try it out. Stage makeup has changed beyond recognition. Performers can often leave the stage door in their makeup nowadays, but back then it was applied so thickly that it was nothing less than a mask. The pan stick, or foundation as we call it, was applied and not rubbed in at all. 
The sponges were used to smooth out any lines, but essentially it was almost applied with a trowel, right down to our chests. Before this was applied, you had to smooth down your eyebrows with the dry bar of soap so that they were invisible once the pan stick was applied. At this time, I still had a thick unibrow. When I was about 14, my sister expertly plucked my eyebrows into perfect arches, but until then, my work was cut out for me in the eyebrow covering department. Once covered, new eyebrows were then drawn on with black number 12, way above the original ones, making us look constantly surprised. Blue was then applied to eyelids, black eyeliner, white dots in the centre of the eyes near our noses to make our eyes look wider apart, and shading with brown on either side of our noses to make them look narrower. False eyelashes, sometimes two pairs, and then crimson lipstick painted on with no regard to our own actual lip contours. A few applications of powder via the big powder puff, and hey presto, we all looked identical. After much ooing and eyeing, we would smear lots of the revolting grease over our faces and necks, and use almost an entire box of tissues to take the whole lot off. We'd then trot off to our next class, looking like we had dunked our heads in a pot of multicoloured paint. Mm-hmm.